My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production in association with City News. By now, Canadians are familiar with this story. A young man is detained in a foreign security facility under suspicion of connection to terrorism. He suffers unthinkable consequences while there and eventually sues the Canadian federal government for their role in his incarceration. And then the debate over that settlement becomes a political football in Ottawa. This is the story you may recall of Omar Khadr, Maher Arar, and others. This time, though, it's a little different. For one, the man at the center of our story today, who is currently suing the government for $30 million and an apology, is not Canadian. As well, he was in Canada very briefly, only for a few weeks. During the time he spent here, however, he was watched and tracked. And it is that information, he claims, that led him to 14 years of harsh imprisonment. So how does the story end this time? How culpable is the Canadian government for passing on information it gathered? How accurate was its intelligence? Will we see a similar settlement and apology this time, and given how divisive the political climate has become since the last time this was an issue, just how partisan could this story get? I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Michelle Shepard is a longtime journalist, documentary filmmaker, and recently a podcast host. She has spent decades covering the intersection of terrorism and civil rights. Her most recent podcast for CBC Podcasts is called White Hot Hate. Hello, Michelle. Hey, how are you doing? I'm doing really well. Thank you for making time for us today. Well, thank you for highlighting this story. Of course. Why don't we start with a, a simple question? Who is Mohamedou Old Slahi? Slahi is a Mauritanian, and he was held... Uh, he, in Guantanamo. He was a Guantanamo detainee for over 14 years, uh, held in detention without charge. And, you know, as you know, there were many men that went through Guantanamo. Um, he also was one of those that was held in the CIA uh, so-called black sites, these secret sites that came up after 9-11. And, and the reason that his name is, is quite well known among those who were held is the fact that when he was in detention, he actually wrote a memoir hmm. that became a best-selling book uh, and then later was made into a movie, a Hollywood film. When did you first hear about him, if you remember? And, and have you ever met him or, or spoken to him in person or otherwise? Oh, that's a good question. I, I can't remember exactly when I would have learned about his case. I'm sure, as we'll talk about, his case goes back 
has a Canadian history and it goes back into the late 1990s. But I don't think I heard about him or knew his name until uh, I started doing my Guantanamo coverage. My entry into Guantanamo was covering for years the case of Canadian Omar Khadr. But I also tried to do um, some of the other detainees' stories. And he was one that, that came on my radar because he had this Canadian connection, the fact that he had lived in Canada. I never met him during his time in Guantanamo. The years that I covered uh, the trials down there and, and, and just stories on the base itself, we actually weren't allowed to talk to any of the detainees. Mm-hmm. And we had to sign these very strict Pentagon ground rules before we were even given access to the base. And it was so strict, it was to the point that if you were uh, on one of these so-called tours of the detention camps, and a detainee said hi to you, if you said hi back, that could be considered uh, a violation of the ground rules. and You could actually get kicked out. So I never never laid eyes on him. I never met him. Um, But for this most recent story that I wrote on him, uh, I did get a chance to talk to him over Zoom. And we'll get into that conversation in just a couple of minutes. But first, because you mentioned the Canadian connection, uh, when was he in Canada? And, you know, for how long, what happened to him here? You know, he wasn't here very long. He was actually, he came to Canada from Germany. He So originally he's from Mauritania. He went to Germany uh, to, to study an engineering degree. And then he couldn't get um, residency there. So he ended up, a friend had told him that, you know, Canada had a fairly generous refugee policy and he could, uh, immigration was easier here. So he came here at, I believe it was in November, 1999. And for reasons that we'll get into, he ended up leaving uh, just a couple of months later at the beginning of 2000. And when he was here, he was uh, considered a permanent re- resident, but not a, he hadn't got a citizenship yet. Tell me about how he ended up in custody. What ultimately caused uh, authorities to think or at least to claim that mm, he was somebody dangerous? Yeah, I mean, it's a bit of a long story. Um, it goes back to really his time in, in Germany. And uh, at the t- at that time, in the early uh, late 80s, early 1990s, that was when the, the Soviets had invaded Afghanistan. And he was he went, left Germany, left his studies, took a break, and went over and joined the Mujahideen over in uh, Afghanistan to try to get the to, to get the Soviets out, which eventually they did. And and just a bit of sort of important point of history uh, is that that was at the time that the Mujahideen was was really supported by the West, supported by mm-hmm. um, the U.S. And as we know now, in fact, you know, millions of dollars went in of CIA funding to support them. So he he did that. Then he came back to Germany. He kind of got. Uh, disillusioned with what was happening over there. But he did have a relative that stayed on um, in sort of those those years of fighting in the mid-90s. And during that time, uh, al-Qaeda kind of came into being. Al-Qaeda was kind of around before, but that was the time where they really uh, started to, to gain power, okay. ultimately with uh, bin Laden declaring the fatwa in 1998. So because of that, he uh, and that connection, uh, I believe it was a cousin who stayed on. Um, he, he was on the radar of the German intelligence service. Uh, they did sort of keep an eye on him, but there was, there was never any charges. I, I don't even know if he was questioned or knew at that time if he was uh, on the radar. Hmm. Then he came to Canada. He happened to come to Canada right at the time when it was um, uh, this plot that became known as the Millennial Plot. 
And there was an Algerian in Montreal by the name of Ahmed Ahmed Rassam, who uh, went into the States with a car full of explosives destined for LA, LAX, the Los Angeles airport on the millennium. And he was intercepted really just by chance uh, at the border. That case was really quite a great embarrassment to Canadian authorities because Rassam hadn't been picked up. Mm-hmm. And so um, CSIS and the RCMP went hard investigating this. Montreal was where he'd been. And he'd been at a mosque where Slahi also had been. So Slahi became part of this dragnet. And the Canadians were convinced that he had something to do with the Millennium Plot. The surveillance was so bad that he said he'd had enough. He couldn't, he couldn't take it anymore. And so he left Canada to go back home. Uh, as he went back to Mauritania, the, the Americans actually uh, intercepted him and interviewed him. Uh, but he was he was let go, you know, left to to continue his life in Mauritania. And then 9-11 happened. And, you know, as we know, after 9-11, uh, it, all intelligence agencies in the world just started looking hard. OK, who was out there? What what was um, who did they want to to question? And we know that, you know, thousands of people were, were hundreds of people, if not thousands, were, were pulled in. Yeah. And he was one of those people. In Mauritania, he became one of um, one of the cases that we call extraordinary rendition, and and what that means is actually the American authorities, the CIA, would would go into the countries outside the U.S., arrest people like Slahi, and take them to one of these offsite secret CIA sites that became known as black sites, and essentially there they were questioned and tortured. So he was held at one of those in Jordan for eight months and then was uh, sent to Guantanamo, where he was for nearly 14 years. My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. And this is where I guess he starts to intersect uh, with the work that you've been doing. And I, I won't ask you to get into ton of of detail. Um, There's a lot going on there, but what kinds of things might have happened to him at the Black Site and at Guantanamo? And just, I mean, in general, because you covered a lot of these men, what's it like to to go to that prison? Yeah, um, well, there's been, I mean, we know now what we didn't know then, but but after 9-11, under the Bush administration, they started something that was known as the Enhanced Interrogation Technique uh, program, and it was a, a way of interrogating these detainees, and uh, really it was torture. I mean, it was all these methods that we've heard much about now about waterboarding, um, sexual humiliation, sleep deprivation, uh, exposure to extreme temperatures, noise. Uh, it, it's a it's a really horrific laundry list of techniques that were used, and from what I understand, from what he endured in Jordan. Short of waterboarding, I don't think he actually was one of those that was waterboarded, doesn't claim he was, Um, but he had a lot of these uh, methods used on him in questioning 
um, trying to ask about uh, his involvement in the millennial plot, but also anything that had to do with uh, uh, Al-Qaeda or anything that had to do with the 9-11. And he was just questioned repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly. As he describes it, eventually he just became completely broken down, just a broken man. And there was an extensive piece in um, uh, New York Times by Carol Rosenberg, who went to Mauritania to sort of detail this legacy of torture through what he endured. And what he told her was really it was the psychological torture that was some of the worst. He alleges that his interrogators said that they would, you know, rape his female family members and bring them there. And that's what really, really broke him. What did he end up confessing to? What he ended up confessing to was uh, actually a plot in in Canada, a, an alleged plot that he was going to, he was planning to blow up the CN Tower. And and what he said to me was that he didn't even actually know what the CN Tower was. Hmm. And I know when I was writing this story, you know, one of my one of my editors said, you know, really, that sort of seems crazy. But he said he'd never been to Toronto. Uh, he lived in Montreal. And <laughs> I have to tell you, I mean, we're Toronto-centric, but I mean, a lot of my American friends don't know what the CN Tower is. So, right. so I, I do believe him when yeah. he says that. But he, that, that was one of the things that, that he, he confessed to after he said he would have signed whatever was put in front of him. Once he went to Guantanamo, you touched on this a little bit earlier. Um, he was there for a long time. What did he do? He started to write. So he wrote a memoir of what was was happening to him there. I believe he finished it quite early, maybe let's I want to say around 2003 or 2005. But it took his lawyers years to get it declassified. And it was quite a struggle to get it out. But they realized what he had there was this, you know, this extensive personal history of what he had endured. So eventually they won and managed to get it uh, declassified with with huge uh, sections blacked out, huge redactions. Uh, And they went on to publish it and it became a bestseller. It was uh, on the New York Times, I believe, bestselling list for a period. Uh, And then it became a Hollywood film where uh, Jodie Foster plays uh, his lawyer, Mm -hmm. among uh, among other actors. And the film, uh, his book was called Guantanamo Diaries, and the film um, was later called The Mauritanian. This man has a fascinating story, and I'm so glad that we've had you kind of run through it. But we're talking about this now because there's another news item involving Slahi and Canada. What's happening? Well, he sued the government. And I have to say, I've been kind of waiting for this to happen because uh, I have covered a lot of these cases. You know, some of your listeners might remember Meher Rar, who was one of the first, and he he got a settlement from the Canadian government, ten point five million. Yeah. The Omar Khadr case, he got ten point five million, uh, and then there were there were other men, uh, Nuruddin Al Malki, uh, Al Mahdi, all men who had been all Canadians who after nine eleven had been held abroad, and they you know showed the courts that it was based on in part on information from Canadian intelligence services. And, you know, that breached their constitutional rights. And so they all sued and um, have had these various settlements. So so he's doing the same. Um, It's a a 30 or $35 million suit against the Canadian government. And what he alleges is what happened in just those brief two months when he was in Canada and that the Canadian Authorities Association 
with him to the Rassam case, that got into this, this sort of this echo chamber, this intelligence echo chamber that ultimately was responsible for being held in the CIA sites and in Guantanamo and the torture that he endured. Uh, what makes his case a little different than the others that have come before is the fact that he wasn't a citizen. He was a permanent resident. And that's kind of a better question for the lawyers as to whether, you know, how that's going to matter in the courts and whether it does. I mean, certainly his lawyers are arguing it doesn't. The same constitutional rights apply under the charter. Right. And, uh, you know, even if they don't, they have other sort of tort law that they believe should apply. Um, so we'll see. We'll see that. But that is otherwise there's so many of the details are very similar to the other cases. But that is one one difference for the courts. What do the Canadian authorities say, if anything, I guess, about their role in putting him under the eyes of other intelligence agencies? Or will they not even admit to that? Yeah, I mean, they haven't they haven't commented yet. The statement of claim was just filed, so they will file a statement of defense. And I'll, I'll be really curious to see what they say on that. Um, there's a possibility that, you know, because of the other cases, perhaps this will just get settled quickly. But these cases are always so very political and such political hot potatoes that um, we'll see. We'll see. We'll see what happens in terms of, you know, admitting their involvement. I think that's going to be interesting to see what comes out in court, because so often in these cases, the idea of intelligence is that it it isn't open to the public. I mean, that's that's there have there hasn't been criminal charges, so there isn't. Uh, a record of his interrogations and what happened to him. So agencies like CSIS are always very protective to put anything out into the public. So so we'll see what um, what this court case does show. And I think, I mean, aside from wanting to have compensation for what happened to him, and when I talked to Slahi, that was really important to him, just getting the truth out there. And, mm-hmm. you know, just what he said to me sort of at the end of the interview was like if they act like if they have proof I did something put it out there like let me answer for it but I didn't do anything wrong and I just need somebody to say that uh and you know in some of these other cases such as Arar and Cotter the government in addition to giving these settlements did say sorry um you know with Arar it was uh, under um Harper Prime Minister Harper at that time and it was a settlement and an apology and I and I think that is is what he's looking for just to finish off his story, how did he get out of Guantanamo and did he keep writing? Where is he now? How's he doing? Mm, yeah, he actually just left Mauritania at the end of last year and now he's in the Netherlands and he has a writer in residence uh, position at a theater company there. Again, I just spoke with him on Zoom, but uh, he was he was so delighted to be there. He's, he's so happy and um, that's that's probably the, I think that's the first, it is the first time since he was released that he's been living somewhere else other than Mauritania. I mean, it's still difficult for him to travel, even though he's a, a, a man who's been, you know, essentially cleared, like all the Guantanamo detainees, former Guantanamo detainees, it's difficult for them to travel after that. So he's, he's very, very happy. Um, the way he got out was really twofold. Um, the military prosecutor on his case actually refused to go forward with the prosecution because of the fact that there was evidence he had been tortured and that he knew that none of that, whatever he had said, the so-called confession and anything he had said during the interrogation just wouldn't hold up in court. So he wasn't going to go forward with um, the case. And that was that was a really big story when that came out. 
um, you know, especially for a military prosecutor to take that stance. That's right. a really, really, really brave thing to do, actually. I mean, it's the right thing to do, but it's a brave thing to do. In addition to that, there is at Guantanamo, there's something that they call the Periodic Review Board. And it's sort of a... It, a military administrative board that looks at whether detainees should continue to be held or released. And eventually they, they decided in 2016 that he would no longer be held. And they don't, I mean, essentially it clears them, but that's not the language they use. It, it says, you know, no longer considered a detainee or no longer considered um, a threat. I can't remember the exact language, but whatever it is, it's basically, okay, we're not going to hold him anymore. And so after that, he was released. And it was, uh, yeah, nearly 14 years later. And now I guess we're waiting to see what happens next in terms of his lawsuit. Yeah. I mean, as I said, I'll be interested to, to read the statement of defense and, and how the government decides to, to handle this and whether they decide to, you know, settle quickly or f- dig in and fight hard. Um, there's that issue of, you know, his, his immigration status. I don't know if that makes a difference. But um, often these cases do take a long time to work their way through. So we'll just wait and see. Well, thank you for your reporting and sharing it with us. I'm glad you're still on this file, at least in part. (laughs) Thanks. Thanks for having me today. Michelle Shepard wrote about this case in the Toronto Star. That was The Big Story. For more from us, head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. Find us on Twitter at thebigstoryfpn. Email us anytime. The address is hello at thebigstorypodcast.ca. And call us anytime. Leave us a message. Ask us anything you'd like to know about how we make this podcast or how we approach the news. You can call us at 416-935-5935. That's 416-935-5935. Just so you know, those voicemails automatically go to all our inboxes. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow. In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together. We were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now.